Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club. And here we are, Ben and I back again in action. And we've got a really interesting discussion today on buy customers, colon buy buy customers, which we'll unpack for you today. I hope you've understood that, listeners. It's really about customer lifetime value that we're going to be digging into. So, Ben, how are you anyway, before I ramble on too much? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Ian. Nice to be here just before Easter weekend. Of course, we're mm. going to publish just after Easter weekend, but happy Easter or happy long weekend to yeah. all of our listeners out there. Yeah, exactly. The sun is shining. We've just had the hottest day since 1968, would you believe? My weeping cherry tree is out and looking at its absolute best. 30 million people have had their first shot of the vaccine. So, mm -hmm. and you know, we're, we're thinking about holidays. I'm not sure if any of us have actually planned or paid for one yet, but we're thinking about it, which is a good thing. And we can actually meet in a garden this week and have a beer. So life's not that bad. <laughs> no, it's not. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the episode, Ben, we always start with what's caught your attention. So let me start with you. What's caught your attention, Ben? Makoto Uchida has caught my attention. Do you know who he is? <laughs> You're going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> He is chief exec at Nissan. Mm. And why he's caught my attention, and this is a headline in, in, in the newspaper, it's an article telling the story of how he became uh, CEO. And at that moment, he had a conversation with, the, with Nissan investors, and he said to them, please dismiss me if you don't see a recovery. So, wow. yeah, and the headline is, I told Nissan, please fire me if I fail to spark a recovery. And, yeah, I'd just been scanning the paper and this jumped out at me and I thought, how refreshing for, for a CEO, any leader, to pin their colours to the mast in that way. This is what I'm going to do. If I don't do it, dismiss me. Yeah, hold me accountable. Mm. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so ni nice and simple, but refreshing, I think. Well, that's right. I mean, we know that when we talk to a lot of our businesses, and one of the things that they struggle with often is accountability. And to see that from the top is where that will now start to infect the culture, start to influence the culture right the way through the business, hopefully. So it's a great thing. As we know, leaders set the tone, leaders play the tune on the piano, and others follow. And that's fantastic to hear that. I agree. And it got me thinking, do I do this? And mm. if I think about a coaching client or prospective coaching clients, one of my first questions to them before we begin coaching is, hey, six months in, six months along from now, how will you know this coaching has been successful? Mm. And I jot down the answer. And halfway through, we check, are we making progress towards that? And at the six month point, if it was six months, we check. Where are we against that? Have they made the progress that they wanted to make with the mm. coaching? That's right. I think it's being authentic, isn't it? We're going to talk about a bit of this today, aren't we? About this trust, this relationship you have with clients and mm. this authenticity about, about showing up. I think it's interesting what you say there, because I think... When you look at some of the big corporates, you could say it's possibly a bit easier to hide, but actually as an SME or as a small business owner, it's 
it's not very easy to hide. You're mm. going to be judged every day on whether you're delivering value and which is again sort of start starting to nip into our main subject here but if you're not uh, delivering great value you're going to have a conversation or you're going to lose a client fairly quickly probably yeah i i agree and maybe we've already got a conclusion on our main topic which is of course the big guys and the big girls they are being judged every day but perhaps they lose sight of that perhaps they yeah. forget yeah you know and they let customers come and go without thinking about it but anyway as you say we're fast tracking so let's <laughs> slow down ian what's got your attention well it's another simple one really it's the power of three i was listening to a podcast there were three people on the podcast and i thought well, that's interesting three of them because there's obviously there's the two of us here and when we, whenever we've interviewed somebody one of us have made, had done the interview mm -hmm. so it's been two again and i suddenly thought Oh, it worked really well seeing three and uh, you know we spoke and, and I said this might be something we could do in the future have a sort of almost like a little round table with somebody talking about a subject but then I started thinking about what else is the power of three and I immediately then went back to thinking about Obama and when he was running for president many many times he used that in his oratory and he was obviously famous for that and it grabs us you know famously there were lots of famous Obama quotes but we're not the red states we're not the blue states we're the united states of america you know that was one of the sort of hairs on the back of the yeah. neck moments for people in america mm -hmm. and he did it again and again and again and if you look back at his what's on youtube you'll find it being repeated in all the things he does but so i went back and started to look at well where does this come from and you know a lot of people have written about this a lot of psychologists have written about this a lot of neuroscientists have written about this if we go back to our childhood we talk about three blind mice abc one two three we have the three musketeers we have three little pigs we have three wise men we have you know father son holy spirit we have triathlons it goes on and on when you start seeing a pattern in the olympics we, we only award gold silver and bronze businesses tend to look at three scenarios optimistic averages pessimistic we have probability theory you know when we look at sales we look at hot warm and cool the most stable shape in engineering is a triangle artists tend to divide things into threes on pages three primary colors red yellow and blue it's, it goes on and on. It's, it's fascinating when you get into something like this. And the neuroscience says our brains love patterns and short-term memory, we easily remember three. Three is a thing that we always very easily remember. And I find it fascinating. And then for leaders, very useful, which is when they're communicating, either making talks to groups of people or writing, this power of three is really important. It, 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 it was another article I picked up. I've always been a fan of Steve Jobs and, and when he used to front up and introduce new Apple products and there was the famous introduction of the iPhone back in 2007 and he said on stage, we're going to be bringing to market an MP3 player, a phone, and he called it an internet communications device. <laughs> this was 2007. Yep. And he said, actually, and this was the hook, but we're going to do it in one thing. It's called the iPhone. And of course, you know, the audience erupted and, and that was the bringing the iPhone to market. But he did it in three again and it, 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 it just captures you. So I think it's really cool. I've often talked to people. I've been helping them on communications and, and, and writing things and so on. 
in businesses and this was a chance to kind of get into it a bit more and I found a tiny little bit of research quite interesting and revealing. Yeah, it is interesting. Part of it, you said there's there's something going on with the psychology here and and part of it, if we think of what Obama said, we're not the red state, we're not the blue state, we are the United States. And so the psychology of that might be that a listener that agrees with Obama, what's their experience? We're not the red state, I agree. We're yeah. not the blue state, I agree. We're the United States, I agree. <laughs> and then what he says next, they're very likely to agree with. Yeah, there is psychology in that. I absolutely agree with. Yeah, you know, so no. it's almost a hypnotic statement. Uh, it yeah. creates yeah. a pattern of agreement, actually, for his target listener. His speech writers and his own ability to hone a speech were uh, still are. I love listening to the guy. I think he's mm. really smart and, and you know, uh, and got a lovely voice. So fascinating. You start digging a bit deeper on something that seems to be a sideshow and it becomes something that actually could be quite important to us. Yeah, absolutely. I happened to watch the Jobs uh, product launch the other day. One of the founder that I work with sent it, sent it to me Great. for a completely different reason. And it's fascinating to watch because the audience doesn't really respond to the internet communications device part. <laughs> They're responding to the, the iPod in the pocket and, and the phone. So perhaps I'm sure Jobs knew that the real secret of the iPhone was the was the internet, and not the other two things. But maybe that's the reason for three there, that people agreed with the iPod in the pocket and the phone, mm. and they just went along with the internet communications device. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I can remember it. I can remember it. And it's, it's the way he put together those the presentations he used to do. Somebody said of Jobs once, you know. He looks like he just gets on stage in a pair of jeans and his black t-shirt and kind of strolled it around and made it up as he went along. But it was far from the truth. <laughs> he practiced that to death before he got up there and knew exactly every word he was going to utter. Over and over. Unlike us. Um, <laughs> this is totally unpracticed. So, by customers, B-U-Y customers, or bye-bye customers... Should we get should we get to work, Ian? Yeah, let's get to work. And I, I think the place to start let's get a definition on the table so that everyone knows the definition we're using. Of customer lifetime value. And actually this is why this is an ep episode. I was looking at customer lifetime value and I'm not very comfortable with it. Anyway. What does it mean? Customer lifetime value it's, it's a technical concept. Google, and you'll find that there's different ways to, to calculate uh, customer lifetime value. The idea is that customer lifetime value is the total revenue a business can reasonably expect from a single customer over their lifetime. So to arrive at it, we might take the average purchase spend and the frequency of purchase and the lifespan of the customer. And so I found an example for 
Starbucks, this example was, and it had drawn on some publicly available data. And the calculation I find stunning. It's in America, average purchase price, $5.90. Frequency of purchase, 4.2 times a week. And then the calculation had 52 weeks in a year. So they'd assume, you know, the week was absolutely typical. Lifespan of the customer, 20 years. <laughs> So that leads to a customer lifetime value in this calculation of $25,272. On cappuccinos. Yeah, on cappuccinos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the first thing is, this is a version of the customer lifetime value formula that calculates revenue. Mm -hmm. And there are others and it's probably more sensible, I think, that, that calculate profits. Mm -hmm. So they factor mm -hmm. in the cost of the customer as well. Mm -hmm. And there are businesses out there for whom this is the strategy. And they will say, let's leave Starbucks alone because they've been good and provided us an example here. But there are businesses out there who might calculate that the lifetime value uh, of a customer is let's say 1500 pounds therefore they will quite happily spend 500 pounds acquiring that customer because over the lifetime they're going to make a thousand pounds and they'll go and seek investment and then they'll run marketing campaigns and they'll acquire mm -hmm. customers and they'll do it again and again and sometimes they grow pretty quickly and I think you know sometimes I I have an experience and I think I'm on the receiving end of this and for example when it comes to renewing my broadband and TV contracts there's always a deal mm -hmm. and if I go for the deal I'm tied in for 18 months and it just feels that I'm on the receiving end of a customer lifetime value view of me. We've all been there, haven't we? Mm. You know, we can name those companies who <laughs> make us feel like that. And, and they are the, the big boys. And the interesting thing is, I'm just wondering as you're saying that, one of the things that crossed my mind is in some of these landscapes we're dealing with here, the competition's equally as bad. And the problem mm. is, we've got nowhere to go. And that's where I think when you come down to our world on a day-to-day -day basis, is our SME clients and our scale-up clients, they actually have got more of a choice here, and they've got places to go and ways to differentiate. And that's, But that is the problem when you're trying to renegotiate your broadband and you think, you know, out <laughs> of the frying pan and into the fire. <laughs> uh, yes, it defines industries sometimes, doesn't it? Of course, that's a great opportunity for the player in that industry that spots that. And before we dive into our world of startup and scale-up businesses and SME size companies, as you say, there are some good examples out there as well. And a couple, so Zappos. Mm -hmm. A company I know you like, you've spoken mm -hmm. about Zappos, Zappos, mm -hmm. Zappos, 
How do I pronounce this, Ian? <laughs> oh, I'll probably get it wrong. My American colleagues will crucify me. <laughs> Zappos, I think, is Zappos. how you say it. But... Well, it comes from the, the Spanish Zapatos, it does. doesn't it? Mm. So Zappos. And so they, they've used customer lifetime value. And the way they've used it is in combination with lots of good data about their different customers. And one of the things Zappos spotted is that their most profitable customers, their most valuable, are those that return a lot of shoes. Mm. Those customers tend to buy the more expensive shoes and they've got a high return rate as well. So what did Zappos do? They, they have a 365-day returns policy. They have free shipping. There is no cost for a return. And that's the investment they make in that type of customer. Mm-hmm. So they've used it quite, quite sensibly, I think. And then Amazon uh, is another example, Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. in fact. And Amazon understand that their Prime customers spend more and are great customers. And of course, there's a Prime customer, I'm a Prime customer, there's a bunch of benefits mm-hmm. that, that, that we get. So here, customer lifetime value and and the use of the equation and the analysis led to the prime mm. program. You know, both of these are quite different to simply acquiring customers. That's interesting. It's funny when I was writing down earlier, thinking about the relationship I've had with brands that I've stayed loyal to. And that's an interesting one. I found a quote somewhere, which is you must stay loyal to your customers, not they to you. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting one. But I was thinking, you know, w- which of these brands? And actually, I'd forgotten about Amazon. But actually, Amazon is a brand I've been close to for a long time. I suppose I started with many people with books, as Amazon did, and then went on to just buying stuff regularly and then becoming a prime customer. And of course, then they hooked you in with Amazon Prime as a competitor to Netflix, which is good. And, and and then, of course, Audible. And then, of course, Amazon bought it. So, but yeah, it's interesting because if if I think about Amazon, I was going to say they always deliver. They do always deliver, you know. And I mm. think that's the prime thing that hooks you in. And I hate, you know, I hate myself for it sometimes. I sit there and I think I don't want to buy something else through Amazon. But actually, if I list all the reasons... I do, they get it right. You know, they give me a massive choice. They deliver when they'll say they deliver. There's no question at all if it goes wrong for me. They sort it out and, you know, the the pricing's pretty good. And they're starting to move more towards, you know, eco vans and all that kind of stuff, which, which, you know, we all all want. But it's interesting, isn't it, where a company will hook you in because you want them. They give you something you need, you want, you trust them. And even if you think, I'd rather be buying local or maybe I should be buying, you know, the corner shop and the guy down the road, there is such a pulling power from customers, big companies like who get it right. Mm. Like, like going back to Zappos. If they get it right, they really do pull you in and can retain that long-term customer value with you. Yeah, absolutely. So so there's good and bad versions mm. of this. Another that I thought of, in fact, thinking back to, to having children 
and being in the maternity ward and the box that arrives on the foot of the bed full of uh, nappies and other products, you know, which says on it, 79 pounds worth of, of stuff are gift for you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's got customer lifetime value written all over it, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting, isn't it? And you know, Peter Drucker, he said, the purpose of a business is to create and keep a customer. He did. You've been reading my notes, haven't you? Had you written that down as well? <laughs> I had. Not su- unsurprisingly. And it's, yeah, as we talked about Amazon, Zappos, our broadband providers, the nappy companies, they're all doing that, of course. And mm. I know that as I listen to these stories just now, I felt better about some companies than I did about others. That's right. So that's really yeah, important, I think. How does this, you know, for, for us, as we work with smaller businesses and growing businesses, and actually, you know, I set out to work with values-based businesses. Yeah. This raises an important question for me, which is how does the customer feel? Yeah, which, which is great, isn't it? Because I... I kind of arrived at a similar place, I think. Thinking about this topic, I started to turn it back on me and say, apart from Amazon, which just popped up for me now when you said it, the brands I, I have stuck with, albeit this is B2C, because it's me, is, have been over the years, have been Apple. I've had a massive, a very long relationship with Apple since the late 90s, buying their products. And, and Lexus is the other one where I've had a couple of cars from Lexus and and I've done a lot of work with them and I think they're a great business. So I was thinking, well, why? What's hooked me in? So I thought I'd turn it around the other way and say, what is it about this relationship I've had and I've stayed with it? And definitely that word relationship comes up there, doesn't it? But I sort of started with, you know, well, the quality, looks, design, service, definitely ease of use, performance. You know, they're both... (laughs) People might differ with me on Lexus, but cool brands. They work really well. They come up with new innovations. But above and beyond all that, I think to me it comes down to two words that popped out for me was I trust the brand. I, I trust them in a sort of deep way. And maybe that comes back to the values you've just talked about, the values uh-huh. of a business. Do I feel associated with them? And this sort of relationship and I'll tell you a story on Apple which hooked me in and we know this every every company's got this kind of story so I was in my last house I was in the garden it was a hot day I'd left my Apple laptop computer on and Jacqueline my wife came running down the garden and said Ian there's smoke coming out of the keyboard on your Apple laptop (laughs) so not what I hoped for so I ran back and I looked at it and true enough there was smoke coming out the keyboard the the keys had melted the only way i could describe them they looked like cornflakes and clearly the computer was gone Mm. and i got in touch with apple this must be 10 years 10 12 years ago now got in touch with apple and they fast-tracked me through to a lady in california and she spoke to me and she said can you tell me all about the the laptop can you send me some photos we looked at it and about a couple of days later she ran me back and said this is terrible, really awful. And we've had a problem with a few batteries, as we know they did. And she said, what would you like? 
you know, and she mm. basically they basically gave me the fastest, biggest, best. This the laptop was the MacBook Pro at that point was about two years old. They gave me the latest, greatest version of what they could possibly give me, and they sorted out very quickly. And yeah, I never forget the story. It's the story again, isn't it? It's that, that it's that relationship, it's that trust, as I've spoken about. So yeah, I think that's, okay. that's 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 the key thing for me. Well, it's more than that, at least as I listen to your story, Ian. Uh, it, it's more than that, and, and it kind of underlines our topic, I, I think. Customer lifetime value, you know, taken to the extreme, becomes a sort of ruthless segmentation and monetization of, of the customer. And, of course, doing that doesn't create a competitive advantage, at least not a sustainable one so if you're a business that's operating in any of these ways you've got to make sure that you've got the trust of the customers your point and what do you do in order to build and maintain and nourish that trust the other one there of course is is apple uh, and one of the reasons you said you go to apple is is the products they're a product mm. leadership company oh completely yeah you know so they've got a strategy built around product leadership they're also very clear about how they how good they need to be at customer intimacy and operational excellence in order to be world leading. Mm. 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 Okay. Yeah. And sorry, you said yes, and you're about to. Yeah, yeah. I, I I suppose in a sense it was I was kind of looking at it in almost like a. I almost take for granted, which I shouldn't do, because I'm sitting here you know, in Godalming at my desk, surrounded by Apple products. So I shouldn't take it for granted that the reason I came into Apple and one of the big reasons is what you say, Ben. Mm. They they work beautifully, the performance is amazing. I love the look at them, you know, product quality and all those things. But it's interesting about a brand, isn't it? Or about something like Apple, which you speak about. It's a good thing that I take that for granted in a sense, because that to me is a base level for Apple. You know, mm. if it if it doesn't, if they bring out a product and it's not in my world, absolutely brilliant, looks great, quality's great, performs fantastic. That's a sort of baseline for me. And therefore, when I look at the competition, when I pick up, you know, you can tell I'm not a PC person, can't you? If I pick up a Dell or a, an HP computer, I sort of, ugh. And, and that's just me, you know, that's a personal opinion, but <laughs> I, I can't get it, you know, and, and I've had lots of conversations with people about that. But so that for me is a baseline. That's that's this le this really high level of what you're going to give me. And then on top of that, you give me something else, too. Yeah. OK, so we've got a reason that we become a customer and then we have reasons that we, we stay or choose not to stay as as customers. And yeah. And so this gets me on to, to a question that I sometimes ask with, with leadership teams or with, with founders in their, in their businesses. So let's, let's do it here. We've got our customers. And if we think about our customers, when is it that they become more valuable? Yeah, so if we ask a question, our customers become more valuable when? And we complete this sentence. Hmm. Great question. And what do your, what's the range of answers you get then when you ask your 
clients that question. So the conversation normally begins with, well, when they buy more stuff, mm. and when they and when they pay our headline prices, not discounted prices, and when they come back again and again, and when they're reliable, loyal customers. So the, these are the quick first answers. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you've got to keep them going. And then you get on to different answers because, well, let's get on to the different answers. And, and I thought, well, again, I thought, do I do this? And I thought, mm. okay, well, the companies I work with, the leaders I work with, when do they become more valuable to, to me? And, and the answer is when they begin developing new ideas when they collaborate with me around those ideas. Yeah, and then that gets me to actually something that comes before that, all that is when they achieve what they set out to, to achieve. And, it, you know, and one of my first questions always, if I'm speaking to, you had my first question for a coaching client earlier, in six months' time, how will you know that this coaching has been successful? If I'm working with a founder, let's say, I typically ask something along the lines of, tell me in two, three years' time, whatever the horizon is, how is the business going to be significantly different to today? Yeah. And and then hopefully I work with them. Yeah, and there, and there's a bit of a a mutual test going on there. I want to work with ambitious companies and also I can help ambitious companies. So if I get an ambitious answer, I've got stuff to talk about. If I don't get an ambitious answer, I'm a little bit stumped, actually. But we go on to work together and actually I watch for them achieving what they said in that answer Hmm. somewhere between the 12 and 24 month point. Yeah, so hopefully I've, I've been a small part of getting them there early. Mm-hmm. And then the key is, having got there, then they've got new ideas. They realise more is possible. There's more to be done. Hopefully, in some of what I've done with them, we've mm-hmm. arrived at some of those ideas. Mm-hmm. And then they want to put them into into action. And that might mean that they've asked me to do strategy process with them. Mm-hmm. It might mean that they've asked me to to work the team and help take the team to high performance. It might mean that I'm doing a learning program in the organization. Maybe I'm doing leadership coaching. But but the point is, it wasn't about what I did. It was about what the customer did. The customer mm. made enough progress to achieve what they set out to achieve and to have new ideas and then to be wanting to put those new ideas into practice and... And a, and a good amount of the time, I'm lucky enough to be a part of that. So mm. I get to do more of them, and it's stuff I love doing. Mm. And that's pretty typical, I think, for the how that conversation goes. How do our customers become more valuable? Or when is it they become more valuable? Well, it's when they buy more, when they buy frequently, mm. when they buy at a good price. Well, if we stop there, uh-oh, we're mm. in trouble. Because mm. what have we got? We've got a customer that we're exploiting. Yeah. And there's no more to it. 
than that. Yeah. That's just the language of exploiting the customer as a resource. Whereas if we keep going and we realize what is it that the customer does that shows that they're growing and making progress in part because they've been a customer of ours and we've contributed, well, that's when when it changes, you know, and so it becomes, for me, a story not about exploitation, but about the customer growing. And I can see that working with, I'm just sort of glancing up at a lot of the clients I've got on my whiteboard, and I can see that working with a lot of my clients where you realise that this relationship can't be transactional, it has to be a partnership where we both understand what we want to achieve and we're part of that journey together. And when you really understand that your customer and you might, you know, we're in our roles, we're, we're part of that, helping them, pushing them, supporting them, challenging to figure out what their future might be. But if you're not doing what we do and you're selling products and services, you, you need to understand what the strategy of the customer is and where they want to be in three or five years and how you can support them on that journey and then add to them and, and help them do that. I'm just thinking for some of the clients that I'm working with, it's not so easy as that. And I'm wondering if, if it's, is that just they haven't, got to that level with their business proposition or or if they don't how does that relationship work how does that work from your point of view you get me thinking about a company i work with a manufacturer and they manufacture filters for critical processes in food and drink in oil and gas in automotive filters hmm. and their customers become more valuable to them when the customer begins looking at their processes and thinking about how effective is my, my process and how is the filtration working and what's the cost of that and what's involved in keeping this process pure and uncontaminated, which is of course what filtration does and as they look into that and they share that thinking that data then then it's possible to become involved with that which, okay how how can we improve the process so you shift from yeah you know, a replaceable component which is a filter mm. into actually how can we make these processes work better uh, be more cost effective be purer and that's got real value to, to the customer and, and and they do some really good work around that uh, you know it becomes about the filter housing as well as the filter and innovative ways uh, of filtering that process so um, mm. when the customer begins working in that way then company knows they've really resourced them and empowered them and is able to do more for them if I think of another example an inbound marketing company now what do mm. inbound marketing companies do they probably are involved in creating your website mm. they're involved in the content and the campaigns that that are running there's inbound marketing software as well and they can set all of this up and they can they can run it for you but if we get a a client who's really beginning to look into so what's working and which of this marketing is having impact and how is that working 
you know, uh, a bit like Zappos understanding that their highest value customers are returning a lot of shoes and hence they should have a fantastic returns policy, 365 days and free shipping and all of the things they do. When they get a customer that's thinking about their customers and their approaches and their campaigns in that way, well then they're able to take the the website, the content, the, the inbound marketing work they do, the strategies that they implement to the next level. Mm, and mm. that's powerful for both customer mm, and mm. provider. Mm. It's, a, it's a great point, isn't it? As we build a business, we start to move up the hierarchy of value that we're giving to customers and therefore hook them in um, because they want to be hooked in because we're on a journey together. One of the things that occurred to me when you were saying all that, of course, is that one of the things that underpinned this, and, and it came back to how you started with the definition, is as organizations also what we're measuring. Because if we're, if we're measuring just the financials, obviously, you know, as people have said, if you're just looking in the rear view mirror, you're measuring short-term success. It's when you start measuring interesting measures around the customer, and interesting measures around your people and your systems and processes that you get real information that tells you about what customers value, why yep. they keep coming yep. back, how long they stay with you, you know, MPS and and also couple with that your people, you know, the the engagement of your people will be will be partly down to how internally engaged they are, but actually how engaged they are with your customers as well. So there's a whole measurement piece that underpins this too. Yeah, I think there is. And of course, it's very specific to every business. So let's take that upper level and and find a way of looking at this that works for, I think, all businesses. I really enjoy doing this, actually. And it's the purpose profit matrix. And it's a bit like a Gartner Magic Quadrant. So we've got two dimensions here. We've got purpose, by which I mean are we having the impact which we intend to have with our customer? And we've got profit. Simple. And of course, these two dimensions give us four quadrants. So, and what, what we'll do is we'll map our customers according to are we achieving purpose, are we achieving profit with them or not. And so our four quadrants, bottom left, we're not achieving our purpose or the impact we set out to achieve, nor are we profitable. So guess what? Just stop doing it. Customer's not enjoying it. We're not enjoying it. Yeah. Then we've got, we are achieving our purpose. We are having impact, but it's not profitable. Yeah. Well, this for me is tactical. Let's think about why we're doing this. Is this a maiden customer in a area that we've not worked in before and we'd love to be working in in which case great we're having the impact we need and future customers in this in this sector are going to be both impactful and profitable so it's tactical and and we do it but if it's not tactical if we can't find the reason again we should stop Then there's the golden segment. We're achieving our purpose and we're profitable. Perfect. 
this is what we we set out to do and I like every company to aim to be 90% in this quadrant Mm -hmm. and then there's a fourth possibility which is those customers for whom actually we don't have the impact we set out to have or we're not on purpose but it's profitable (laughs) go figure and mm, mm. and with these ones, I think how we look at it is different each time. Perhaps this is a side hustle, something to be developed. Perhaps this is an opportunity to divest a profitable part of the business that, that doesn't fit because, of course, it can become really confusing to the mm. message. Or maybe this is something to automate in, in the business. But the point is we're, we're aiming to do 90% of our work on purpose and profitably. And I think it's just a really interesting, good, simple exercise. Is this the Wales matrix? Or could you tie this into some other professor from Harvard? Um, This is similar to a concept from Watertight Marketing. And they talk about the passion profit uh, matrix, but really, really similar. Yeah, it is. It is. You, you, you've clearly shown your consulting flag here today, which is great. I mean, the interesting thing, the bottom corner, which you've said, you're making profit, but we're maybe not on purpose. I think that's a really great question to have with a leadership team in a business, because there will be occasions when that's a very, very uncomfortable question to pose. I can remember all sorts of stories of great salespeople making great sales, you start to rely on them, they've got a whole bunch of clients but their churn rate's not not great for the business, they're bringing in revenue, they're bringing in profit, they're earning loads of money but actually we're not on purpose mm. and you know that's a, that's a tough one for many business leaders to deal with so there could be an ugly thing going on in bottom right of this matrix well, it, to deal it depends with. as i told the story there i had 90 percent or let's mm. say 70 to 90 percent of the work is in the top right corner we're on purpose and we're profitable and we had just a minority that's off purpose and, yeah. and profitable as i listen to you i think the really awkward situation is oh heck 70 percent of our work is not on purpose not having the impact that we set out to have but it's profitable that's that's (laughs) yeah yeah that that's a brutal truth that's a really brutal truth and and but it doesn't that come back to and we're not doing an episode on this but it comes right back to how many times have you really sat there as a leadership team and said why are we doing what we do yeah what What business are we really in Exactly. What yeah. gets us out of bed in the morning? What's our purpose? Because unless you can answer that question on your matrix, you kind of can't really do the matrix. You know, you can you can muck about and go, oh, yeah, we're pretty much on purpose there. And, you know, we're not doing too bad there. But you've got to really say, what does that mean? What is that? Because we all know what profit means. But what does really for us mm. this purpose impact axis mean? Because that's that's the key to this model, I think. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um so what have we what have we got Ian to the title of the podcast buy customers or bye bye customers if we just purchase customers chances are we're going to generate 
no loyalty and mm. in fact resentment and off they will go yeah yeah and yeah. if there's nothing else to our strategy watch out particularly if we took investment to to drive that we know how hard it is i was looking at some stats this morning hbr harvard business review gaining a customer between five and 25 times more costly than retaining a customer Bain and Company, a 5% increase in retention rate can lead to an increase in profit between 25 and 95%. So, yeah, there's loads of those out there. There's, there's loads out there, aren't, aren't there? And I find it so interesting to notice when these get mentioned in a business. Yeah. Because they're normally mentioned as an excuse for new business sales or marketing not working well enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the answer is actually we need both. Mm -hmm. We need both. They're both absolutely essential. But yeah, it, it's another way of describing the difference between exploiting our customers mm. and really helping those customers to create value. Yeah, we've been all around the houses. Coming back to the purpose piece, Southwest Airlines, the most loved, the most flown and the most profitable airline is their vision. Mm. and. Now, I love that as a vision, to be the most loved, most flown, most profitable airline. As soon as you say that, you start saying, what does loved mean? What, how do we measure love with our customers? Why do customers fly with us? They fly with us because we give them what they want and we create trust and we create relationship and we're completely reliable and we also put in there a bit of quirkiness, which mm. is what Southwest do. But I love that because it goes back to, if you're gonna measure some of this stuff like customer relationship, trust, purpose, you know, you've gotta go back to the basics we started with loads of podcasts ago and say, as I said, why are we here? Where do we wanna go? And when you've nailed those things, some of these matrices can really sit on top of that and say, so have we got the customers that help us on that journey? Mm. How do we measure the profit there? What are we measuring at all? What do they say about us? You know, all these things become useful, all these models, which are fantastic, once we've got an underlying business based on a real purpose we all get, a real vision we all understand, and a roadmap that's gonna take us there, which, which we've been discussing in all our strategy episodes to date. Yeah, and you're describing strategy part four, which is coming up there. Let's, let's underline this a different way. As I was thinking through this episode and some of the points we've hit, Warren Buffett popped into my mind. And he said something which I think is a good test here as well. Warren Buffett, he said, the single most important decision in evaluating a business is pricing power. If you've got the power to raise prices without losing business to a competitor, you've got a very good business. And if you have to have a prayer session before raising the price by 10%, then you've got a terrible business. <laughs> and I think that's, that's great. And the answer to that question is another way of knowing, are we having the impact that we need to to justify the customer spending their hard-earned cash with us. 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, isn't it? We haven't really come on to pricing much yet, have we? And and pricing's a really good point to make. There's all the psychological pricing, there's pricing to do with the brand and we all know from our experiences too many organizations, too many people I talk to about starting up businesses often start with too low a price point in their mind which devalues them automatically and they find it difficult to find the customers they want. So what is it on pricing that you think fits into this session, this podcast that's really pertinent for our listeners? It's a giant topic, probably one I think that is underspoken about. Yeah. But for today, my point was just the Warren Buffett saying that if you have to if you have to say a prayer before you raise your prices it's probably a good signpost that we're not in that intersection of of purpose or impact and profit so let's look harder Hmm. and close the gap and yes i think pricing be a great topic for further down the line yeah i agree it's a huge area pricing we've got a few experts we know on pricing so we might uh, bring one of them in and have a conversation around that yeah you're thinking of mark peacock i am there you the go lovely mark peacock yeah <laughs> so yeah we'll um, we'll talk to mark perhaps and bring him in and, and have a three-way conversation on that which is a great topic and he, he's he's good on that Mm. So we've gone around the houses. We've talked an awful lot about a lot of things. What what's stuck in your mind through this episode, Ben? Well, Ian, this is the Gritty Leaders Club, and we're here to explore hard questions of of leadership. So I suppose I'm thinking, where's the grit in this? What's the hard question? And for me, it's to think hard about the business and understand where are we between exploiting our customers at one extreme and maybe in some businesses that absolutely feels like purchasing customers Mm. and at the other extreme, contributing to our customers, creating value for them, helping them make progress mm. in one way or another. I, I guess this is the the gritty point to think really hard about exactly where are we on that spectrum. I think the thing that brought it home for me was your four box matrix and the discussion around purpose and profit. For me, when we know what we stand for, when we know what our purpose is, then we start to get underneath what we're doing and why we're doing it and who our customers should be and what is value for them. And then that gives us the framework, the guide rails, if you like, to start figuring out how we can support them in the journey. Because I think it's a road where you're not going to be hugely fulfilled in my world. So that's at the heart of it for me, is go back to think about why you do what you do, what gets you out of bed in the morning. And if, you, if you're creating value for a customer and therefore they are staying with you over a long period of time, that's hugely fulfilling. Yes, it is. And we can flip that around. The, the companies that get this right 
they're both fulfilled and have loyal customers, but they're also the quickest growing and the most yeah. profitable businesses that that I know. Exactly. Uh, so, so you know, those those sit together. I guess the the other thing, Ian, from this conversation is the simple reminder of how valuable customers are mm. and the customer lifetime value calculation mm. yeah m- maybe the real utility of of that is to remind us every day every week every interaction just mm. how much our customer is worth mm. to mm. us as well mm. as what they what they mean to us and really flip mm. it on its head let's not necessarily use that to determine how much should we invest in winning Mm. a customer Mm. let's use it to determine how much we should invest in appreciating our customer yeah it reminds me of a story actually and perhaps i'll leave leave everyone with a short story and that is when we went into lockdown last year a year ago I was listening to a Lencioni, I think it was a webinar, I don't think it was his podcast, and he said, don't worry about going and trying to find new customers. He said, look at your best customers and figure out how you could help them out. And so I went away and I thought, who are my biggest and greatest and most lovely customers? Perhaps even ones I'd had maybe done some work with a year ago and then hadn't connected with for a while. And I wrote to them all. Then I said, I really value you. I think you're running a great business. The times are now hard. We're in the position of having to think really hard about what we do and how we do it. And if I can be of any support, I'm here. And here's three things I can do for you for nothing. Mm. And I offered them uh, a leadership workshop and I offered them some coaching for two months for two of their leaders who they thought might need it. And two of them took me up on it straight away now I did some workshops for them and some free coaching and guess what happened two months later those two asked me to come in and do a lot more business for them paid and they were doing very well seven months later this was the interesting thing is so going into the autumn of last year one of them approached me who was one I hadn't done business with for two years but I had written to and put one of their key people on the open leadership leadership map program I'm running. So reaching out and valuing your customers, which is where you started, is just so important. Yeah, t- totally. And lovely story. Cool. Right, well, should we wrap this up then? What are we doing next, Ben? Where are we going next? I think it's strategy four, part four which is the working title is measuring success and Mm -hmm. it's all about how we measure what we do kpis where those come from how we know they're good how we take them through the organization how everyone takes accountability all those good things i think yeah okay great topic what do we measure why do we measure it what does it tell us yeah Uh, and then you reminded me actually a funny story to to end on a company I was working with last year, Olive Communications, who did fantastically well during the lockdown, you know, really invented the art of how do we meet a new prospective customer, develop the conversation, 
win them. Yeah, and they, they have a really complex sale. And they quickly developed the art of that and a ton of other things during lockdown. But I digress. Um, what you've reminded me of is that Olive, they had a lovely KPI they measured through the lockdown, which was how much weight have we lost as a company? <laughs> and the story is Martin Flick, the CEO there, he brought on board a personal trainer and he made him made the trainer available to everybody and he had good take up uh, in the company and the trainer wrote uh, individual plans and spent uh, a half hour or an hour with each person weekly to keep them engaged and invested in during the crazy lockdown period and then we got this KPI how much weight have we lost as a company <laughs> well, that was beautiful Oh, I'm going to put that on my list. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> the best was, we'll see if we can top that when we do strategy four. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Well, it's great to check in. Let's uh, hope um, our listeners took something out of that. Please, as always, send us your questions, your thoughts, your ideas, mm-hmm. anything you'd like to share, any challenges back on what we've talked about also. And uh, we look forward to producing the next one in a couple of weeks' time back here two weeks time see you then Ian yeah cheers Ben bye